Welcome to Bottom Line's Top Dollars, a podcast about all the money things you suspect might be ruining your life. I'm Laura Boo, recording from the city of Charlottetown, which is on the island of Abegwick, unceded Mi'kmaq land, otherwise known as Prince Edward Island, Canada. And I'm Hadassah Damian, currently in a cabin in the upstate New York Catskills, which is the ancestral land of the Iroquois Nation. Together, we are the Ladies Who Crunch, longtime friends, artists, and researchers who have both, somehow, made careers for themselves in finance. In today's episode, we continue telling personal stories on how punk, DIY, and queer cultures bear on our understanding of money, labor, and political life. In particular, we're going to talk about valuing our labor, whether you work for yourself or someone else. And here in late stage capitalism, we are we're forced to value our labor. But how does anybody really understand what enough money is? When it is our one short, sweet lives, we are trading it for. Now, I, I want us to start, Laura, you're in my beginning. We're coming out of punk communities. We have a bit of a different perspective about getting paid, how much money is an okay amount of money to make, and, and what's appropriate to do instead of getting paid. So I want to start with a question for you, which is, what is the punkest thing that you did to avoid having to earn and therefore avoid having to spend money? I love this question and there's so many good answers. I feel like there's a few baseline things that everyone that I knew just did daily. Things like dumpstering was really huge. But if I were to think of away from the daily, something that I did to avoid spending money, I can remember moving my best friend Hugs from my apartment to live in a different punk house and we didn't have any money. So we went around the corner to to the all night grocery store and we left a driver's license in order to borrow two shopping carts. We moved hugs entirely in shopping carts. We just loaded up all of their stuff. I think we rolled up the futon mattress into the into the shopping cart and we brought them to the they were moving to a, a punk house called the Chateau. On the way back, we um we had uh, downhill shopping cart races. <laughs> like inside the shopping cart? Yeah, yeah. Where we like were sitting like, in oh, the shopping cart going yeah. down. What? <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, it was East Vancouver, right? So it's like a hilly place. So it was, it was instead of, tr- you know, paying for gas or finding somebody with a truck or paying somebody. Absolutely not. And it wasn't even that big of a move. We were like, we can do this for free for sure. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Besides your your story of building your own couch, what is the punkest thing that you ever did to avoid spending money? The punkest thing that I ever did to avoid spending money, definitely easy peasy, was being a bicycle commuter. I just really felt like I didn't want to have to buy a Metro card every month because that was like a hundred bucks every month for life. Absolutely not. From the time I got to New York City in like 2005 until honestly, essentially pandemic times, I just rode my bike everywhere. Like I would take the subway sometimes if I had to, if I was going far. But I mean, I I rode my bike to graduate school, like, you know, like an hour from my house. And I saved, I'm going to, I'm going to back of the napkin. I saved 12 grand that way, like a hundred bucks a month (laughs) every year. No doubt. For over 10 years. That's money. That's real money right there. So that's money you did not have to earn. I didn't have to earn (laughs) that money. I could just, uh, yeah, avoid having to earn it. I could put it in the bank. Um, 
meanwhile healthiness also constantly good sweaty good for the environment good for the environment oh. just i mean i still do this like i <laughs> i make enough money now that i could own a car but i don't i came to love city cycling and commuter cycling in like my punk years and it's something i've never given up on i've now moved to like in essence what is a small town that you know everyone here has cars and my mm. neighbors here when we moved in were like you don't own a car and we're like no we have bicycles and they're like it's winter and we're like we know it'll be okay you're like we're from montreal it's okay we're fine we're fine anyway um what about the punkest job you've ever had what's the punkest thing you ever did to make money i think you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna bring in a listener voice here so someone wrote in on uh our instagram jane charlesworth i'm not sure if the punkest way i've made money was busking playing punk tunes on a violin with a pet ferret or selling zines slash swapping zines for veggies and then they ask is it extra punk if it's basically a barter economy the answer is yes yes the answer (laughs) is Both of them are extremely punk ways to make money yeah, <laughs> um, or to avoid having to to spend money. I mean, I, I think the ferret takes it to a place personally. Yeah. All the friends who used to just have rats living in their hoodies, pet rats living in their hoodies. Boy. Yeah. That was a, that was a look in the late nineties. Um, the punkest thing I ever did to earn money. I feel like a lot of the things that I, I did to earn money. I am not going to record on a podcast. I hear you on that. uh, For like several different reasons. But one that I will share is that for so much of my life, I made at least a part of my money by throwing parties, including what you would call like rent parties wherever I was living. If you were going to be short, the household would just move all the furniture into the bedrooms and padlock the bedrooms and throw a party, see what they could make to try and bridge the gap. And Later on, I turned that into throwing parties at bars and clubs. And I was like a little punk entrepreneur creating like rad queer dance spaces for, I don't know. I'm going to say I did that for like a decade. Highly punk. That's how we met. That's how you and I met. That is true, my friend. (laughs) It's true. It's so true. I mean, it's interesting to me. It like brings up this, like the concept of like a formal economy versus an informal economy. And I, I feel like the hypothesis here is that participating in the informal economy economy is more punk, right? And like the definition of an informal economy is one that's not taxed, doesn't have policy, doesn't have government, right? There's no formal arrangements in the informal economy. We don't have, you know, no gods, no masters over there. Lots of lots of cash moving around. I'm still working out whether an informal economy where we've dropped out versus the like extracting from the extractor is more punk, like a job where you just kind of get paid a lot to not have to do a ton. David Graeber's bullshit jobs, perhaps, which are alienating but perhaps quite punk if you can make your zine while it's happening. The job that I had when I felt most punk where I just felt like I could really like be myself and have my hair color and all my piercings and live my life. It was the job where I was working at a vintage store in this sort of like neighborhood where it was all vintage stores. My boss was like, if somebody comes in and they're bothering you, you don't like them, tell them to fuck off. And I was like, oh my God, I can just say what I think. This is, that's weird. (laughs) Do people do that at jobs? And I never, I don't think I ever really had to like, you know, enact that privilege, but just the fact that I could, I didn't feel like I had to wear a mask and I got paid cash. Bada bing. It was it was quite a punk moment in my life. But things are different now. Yeah. Things are different now. That job paid me, I think, $10 an hour. And that was great then. But I would be remiss if I was attempting to live on $10 an hour now, which is why we are going to talk about valuing your labor. How can we take
take what we learned from being super punk about money, like having this viewpoint of like all labor is silly. Exploitation. <laughs> Exploitation, <laughs> you know, like all wages are theft from the worker, you know, and, um, and reframe it because the reality is a lot of us have to have jobs. This whole season trying to build a foundation in like, this is how we thought about it when we were living inside this subculture. How is it changing now? This is the foundation of how I valued myself for so long. And now I'm going through this interesting process of reframing that whole thing Mm. In regards to labor, I'm trying to figure out how to value what my time is worth so that I can advocate for myself in order to make better money. For a long time, I would think about the absolute minimum I needed to get by. So if somebody, you know, if we were doing a project together, we were doing a party, we were doing an event, I was like, okay, what's the bare minimum I can charge so that I have like a way to get home and it feeds mm -hmm. me for a little bit, but is like cool for my friend who's also trying trying to do a thing. I kept valuing myself at what is the minimum I would accept for so long that when I moved into trying to value myself in the labor market for an accountant, I had no tools in my toolbox. I realized that I'm negotiating from that perspective and it was negotiating from a pretty bad place, like that there were other people out there who were really pushing for themselves and getting great salaries. And I wasn't doing that for my Myself. And now I'm I'm no longer negotiating with my friend who also is trying to make capitalism collapse, you know, like, it's, not, it's no longer that context. <laughs> totally. I mean, what I think you're bringing in here, honestly, is like power dynamics, right? Like, it's a very different power relationship to be negotiating with someone with whom you feel you're on equal footing, right? Like, I and my friend are both just trying to like, make sure we have rent and can like have beer money next week. Okay, so we're on equal footing. What is an equal way we can approach this um, house party we're trying to throw and the money we are trying to get out of it? Okay, that's very different than I'm a worker and I'm trying to negotiate a salary and I'm well aware that whatever you're willing to pay me, you are extracting two to four X or more the value out of my time. Employers anticipate they're going to get more out of your time than they're willing to pay you. And, and it's assumed to be a relationship where people are on like different different sides of the table or we're not looking out for the same thing versus if we're like looking for the same thing with our friend. Is that necessarily true in some workplaces? Absolutely, but not necessarily. And certainly not if you work for yourself and you have clients, like when you're trying to value your labor, when you're trying to figure out what to, what to charge for a service or a product, you're also bringing in another perspective, which it isn't necessarily what's the cheapest thing I can charge for this. Dear God, I hope people buy it but rather you're trying to actually trying to figure out how to make enough money for the thing you're doing or the thing you're selling and still have people able and interested to buy it, right? So there's a, there's a bunch of different contexts here, but none of them are super functional. If the thing that you're thinking is what's the least amount of money I'm willing to live on to scrape by in my human existence, right? Correct. This is where we get into like, what are some frameworks that you can use? What are some tools you can put into your toolbox for thinking about the value of your labor? I'm really trying to use these to shift from saying, what is my minimum to saying, what is it that I actually want? Straight up, this is a stressful question. I still sometimes get asked by folks to do small things and they'll ask me what I would charge them. And I get 
super torn up about it, especially when people from my community in quotations, like whether that's folks who are coming out of my queer community or my radical community or whatever, when they approach me to do something, especially something that pulls on my accounting expertise, and they ask me what I charge, I get torn up about it. Mm -hmm. It's like the colliding of my worlds, really. So let's talk about some of the ways that we can think about it. One that a lot of people fall back on is trying to calculate a basic cost of living for themselves. You make a kind of budget and say, well, how much do I need to live? And you're putting into that budget your cost of rent and food and utilities, transportation. And one of the strengths of this is it helps to give you a context of what is real. Like, what are your costs? What do you actually need? But I think that the the biggest uh, kind of mistake that people make when they do this is they're excluding things. They're forgetting to add things to the list. 100%. I see that all the time. I, I think there's like a, a challenge in trying to really differentiate what it is you need from what it is you want from like a just overall cash flow budgeting perspective. And in particular, I often see people forget to include the things that you spend money on kind of occasionally throughout the year. You know, do you have to pay for some kind of insurance? Are there like nibblings in your life where you want to send gifts to? Do you consider going on a holiday a need or a want? Exactly. It's easy to underestimate there's two perspectives going on i think for like especially those of us coming out of like punk culture where the whole learning has been like spend as little as possible it's easy to underestimate i think for people who come from more middle class experiences who are just used to just like having money and just spending money and like not differentiating between needs and desires it can actually be really hard to identify what are the things that you need like your actual minimum from what are the things that you want to have like a a full and fulfilled life yeah, in your mind, change the framework from calculating your living wage to what I'm calling your thriving wage. If you're making that list of what it's going to cost you to not just live, but to thrive, it's trying to remember all the things to put in that budget. And yes, starting with your monthly costs is the most obvious and easiest place to go. So if you're talking about your rent, build in a cushion, understanding that if you accept a job and that's going to be the rate that you will be paid for maybe the next year or two or three, depending on how often you expect to get raises, that you might want to build in a cushion with four rent increases, which depending on where you live and what the rental rules are there, you might have annual rental increases. There might be caps on them. There might not. Don't just plot in your rent right now, but maybe consider that the cost of your rent might change faster than your salary, depending on your bargaining power. So that's one thing. For food, I think that we often say to ourselves, how much can I live off of for groceries? And again, we start setting that minimum, but also saying to yourself, well, if I'm going to be accepting a job where I'm working a lot more, can I go to the five different grocery stores to get all the deals? You know, this place is good for the cost of veggies and this place is good for the cost of dry goods. And, you know, I know a lot of people who spend an ungodly amount of time grocery shopping every week in order to minimize their cost of groceries. But again, if you're going to accept a 
job where you're working 40 hours a week, do you have time to spend five or six hours a week grocery shopping? So, you know, don't set minimum amounts for your food. And also think about the fact that, you know, every once in a while, you do want to eat at a restaurant, maybe, or I guess in the pandemic, get delivery. Again, and then, you know, your internet, your utilities, uh, your monthly transportation. Uh, in the United States, you probably have like a monthly amount for health insurance. Another monthly cost that a lot of people forget is debt repayments. And I think also when you're trying to calculate like a thriving amount of money, like debt minimums go in the minimum amount of money that you need to live, like the I need category. But God forbid you want to actually get ahead and pay off your debt sooner than the minimums are set up for. Because by the way, the minimums are always set up to extract the most money out of you in, in terms of interest payments. So if you want to pay your debt ahead faster and pay the banks and institutions less money, a thriving amount of money would, would have extra for you to put towards your debt payment. So you're not at the minimum. You're like, you're able to see on like a, you know, less than a year to a couple years perspective, like I have paid off this debt. And I think when I'm thinking about thriving, I'm, I'm thinking about actually being able to see some traction on your financial goals. So you can feel like things are changing and you're not stuck. Correct. Correct. Once you get your monthly amounts down, look at the calendar and think of things that you only pay once or twice a year. So this would be things like your license renewal. If you have annual insurance premiums, if you have renter's insurance or any other kind of insurance, if it's part of your life and culture to give people presents for birthdays or holidays, you want to build that in. In the same way, you also want to include in your budget things that are for you. You are allowed to want these things and try to get them through better wages like vacations. Plan for having enough money to do the things you want to do like travel or if it's retirement savings or saving up money to buy your own home or having better or nicer things like looking at not just the costs that come around occasionally in the year that you often forget but then add on top of that and say what are the things that I want for myself I can imagine that for some of you listening you're like oh my god you have just invited me to imagine all the things that are not possible or to imagine all the things that are like outside of the realm of the amount of money I'm making right now. Number one, that's just like real and it's painful and it's hard. Number two, part of this thought exercise is to reframe, you know, and to actually identify a specific value to how much would actually feel like enough money. It's like we are, we're in this like very more, more, more capitalist system where like no matter how much money you get, you're supposed to want more. And we're like conditioned to be like, you know, continue giving more, more, more. But you can identify an amount of money that you ideally would use in a month or a year in order to understand if you're trying to set prices or if you're trying to negotiate salary. You're like, if, if I choose below this, I need to be doing it actively, knowing I'm going to be saying no to some of these things that I want or need. And if I choose above this, or if I can figure out how to get above this number, you know, that means that I'm going to also adjust some of these wants, needs, gift plans with my money so I can be intentional with it. Because sometimes I see people actually start to make more money than they need, especially if you've come from a place of like having not been making enough money that you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to account for all of this or what to 
what to do. And sometimes people can find themselves just sort of like bending it, shoveling it out of their accounts because they haven't gone through this process of being like, if I had a thriving amount of money, what would I be doing with it? And it's a super valuable exercise because it really helps you identify like, all right, in my life, what's enough? And it's going to be different for everybody. If you have kids, there's going to be all kinds of costs. If you're trying to save up for IVF because you want kids, there's a whole bunch of other costs. Like depending on the country you're in, your healthcare is going to be more or less expensive. Like depending on like mental health and like wellness and like lived experience needs, like you might be a person who just like needs more expensive health and wellness care. And that's just, that's, that's on your thriving list. All of this is just one way to go in to think about just for your own personal self, like how much money would make your life not just functional, but like delightful. I love this idea of thriving. It would allow you to get things that you want. If you decide to do this calculation exercise for thinking about what sort of income you actually want for yourself, this number is going to be different if you are calculating it in order to find a job where you are going to be employed by an employer versus whether you are calculating this to understand how much you want to earn for yourself as an independent worker or a self-employed person. At least in the Canadian context, the reason that I mention this is because when you work for somebody else in Canada, that employer is obligated to do certain things such as take source deductions for your taxes and also they kick in what we call employer contributions to things like employment insurance and your Canada pension plan or your Quebec pension plan if you live in Quebec. If you say to yourself, my goal thriving wage is $80,000 a year, if it's being paid by someone else and something happens and you lose that job, you will have the right to employment insurance, which means you will get payments from the government during the time that you are searching for your next job. If your plan is to work for yourself, you actually need to build in a cushion. If something happens and your business doesn't work out and you end up having to look for a job or if a bad thing happens, you will not have access to employment insurance because you technically have not been employed. So you need to be your own employment insurance. You want to factor into how much you're making a cushion. You want to have some emergency fund liquid cash. When people ask me how much that should be, I say, think about how much money you would need to have if whatever you're doing now completely fell out from under you. How much time do you feel safe having to recoup, to find a new job, to do anything? Is that is that two months of expenses? four, six, eight, 12, what is it? Factor that into how much you think you need to make. Totally. And and in the US, like we have all of that and we pay what's called self-employment tax, which is an additional 15% tax um, on your earnings as a self-employed person. So if you work for yourself, whatever you've calculated with all this other stuff and your health insurance and your time off and your self-funding unemployment, add 15% at least. Yeah, this is a big thing that people forget when they try and calculate their wage is remember that if you're like, ah, I have calculated all of my cost of rent and insurance and everything and it equals this amount. Therefore, I will ask for exactly this amount. No taxes. Yeah, unless you're working in a country that has a no income tax, not all of that is going in your pocket. So what I would suggest doing is you can go online and find income tax calculators 
whether you're in Canada or the US, you can search for a calculator that will approximate how much income tax you have to pay. You know, you can pop in the income, it'll calculate how much tax you'll have to pay on it, and it'll tell you how much you get to keep in your pocket. You need to have in your pocket the amount that you've calculated for your budget to thrive. It's after tax is what you get yes, to spend. <laughs> after taxes. And here's the thing for like all of my like fellow former punk slash former not earning a lot of money from wherever context folks, if you're currently earning 25, 30, 40K, what's also going to be different if and as you're thinking about higher wages and valuing your labor, e.g. trying to earn more money, is that the amount percent of taxes you're going to pay goes up. And so if you're used to like being like, oh yeah, it's like 10% taxes or whatever, that is not going to be true anymore once you start making over 40 grand in the US for sure. And I, I think it's similar in Canada. We have, we both have like stepped up tax rates, right? So the more money you make, the higher percentage of tax you pay, which is good and right and how it should be. <laughs> but if you're used to not making a lot of money, it can really throw you off because you're going to be paying a lot more taxes than you maybe are used to. So you're, and you're not used to calculating it like that. So Laura's suggestion to get up on a like online calculator is solid. You don't want to be surprised right? You just want to be paying your taxes, like getting those like libraries and roads funded. It's just, it's just get it done. <laughs> it is not optional, oh my, my friends. It's so true. It's such a buzzkill. And this happened to me. And like, Boy, I said, I once negotiated myself into a situation where what I was making went up by over $30,000. Like Amazing. in the blink of an eye, I was making $30,000 more than I was the day before. I was so stoked and I was all dreamy about my extra money. And then I realized that I had jumped two tax brackets, that my $30,000 increase was actually only extra $12,000 in my pocket. And so, <laughs> you know what? that's 100% fine and good and real. I still want that $12,000. Mm-hmm. But my point is, is that if you are trying to figure out how much you need and you're trying to value your labor and you're trying to, you're trying to bust out of ways of valuing yourself that are really not serving you and are keeping you down, one thing that you have to factor in is thinking about tax because, you know, more money, more problems, namely taxation. <laughs> <laughs> so we just gave you like a very like numbers heavy, like get out your calculator, get out your notepad, spreadsheet, whatever approach. Another approach that I would give you is like, think about your goal of valuing your labor. Like why are you, why are you taking a little time to ask yourself, what do I need to make and why? Is it because you want to be able to buy whatever you want at the grocery store, right? Is that your goal? Are you trying to feel like whatever it is, I'm doing it this job. It's, it's fine. I, I will remind myself how much I'm getting paid and I'm just going to be able to say, yeah, 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 that's fine. You know, is there something that you're trying to make sure that you can like get out of it, you know, or is there like a, some sort of stability factor? You're like, yep. As long as I make twice what my parent made, you know, I'm going to feel like I'm stable and like I'm going to be able to get where I need to go. You can crunch the numbers and there's a ton of value in doing it. I recommend it. And think about what your goal is and identify a particular 
particular goal. Because if your goal is just, I don't know, I need to have money. That's not a goal. That's like a, that's vague (laughs) is what it is. Here's the thing, y'all. It's like valuing our labor in capitalism. It's also abstract because everything has all these experiences and needs of life have had a price put on them, which is just bizarre because we are living, breathing experience beings where we don't think about how you know, the price of everything when you're just trying to like go about and live your life, yet we're forced to think this way. So it's, it's of course a bit abstract. So giving yourself some like real understanding of why um, and what matters to you about figuring out your labor value um, or the value you want before labor, I think can also just help you put a pin and what that is. So it's not just like a exercise in like nihilistic, you know, dart throwing of numbers at a board. You know, it's like, we don't just want you to be like, free falling into market capitalism here with like statements like value yourself. Like you, you want to have a reason why you're saying it. (laughs) I think that in writing these things down, you do get down to your goals because, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that if your goal is just absolutely getting by so that you can work the least possible, then that's one way to go about it. But if you, but if you're Mm -hmm. saying, I actually want a thriving wage, then the fundamental question there is to you, what does it look like to thrive? What is it that you think you need to feel like your life is going how you want it to go? And I think that this exercise of trying to write a budget for that is helpful if you are somebody who has lost a sense of how much things cost. I feel like the value of money for me has always been weird and watery and really tough. I have no idea what anything is worth. And so these kinds of exercises for me were really helpful. But this thing of calculating what you need to live or what you need to thrive is only one half of things. That's like the other tool in your toolbox that I would suggest when you're trying to think about how to value your labor and also how to get that value is to benchmark the value of your labor. And this is going out there and looking for data that is readily available out there about what is the market value of what you do. Basically, you can think about what exactly is your expertise? What is it that you do? How many years of experience do you have doing that thing? What industry are you in? And where are you located? Like, where are you trying to sell that labor? Because somebody doing something in New York City is worth a very different amount than a here in Charlottetown. You can look at all that in the context of the supply and demand of the market. Is what you can offer more rare than the number of potential employers who are looking to hire somebody like you? That can give you a benchmark of what people generally are getting paid to do what you do. And you can use tools online, which I feel like a lot of people don't know about these. And these are really good to kind of give you a little bit of like an external, at least range. So you can go to online tools like Payscale or the Salary Project or Salary.com or Glassdoor. I actually recommend that you do the searches on as many of them as possible because they come out with slightly different numbers. And I'm going to say this, remember that all of these are estimates. They're not exactly what you can get. They don't represent a guarantee either of the minimum or the maximum. You can get more than what they tell you. 
You can also do this by talking to colleagues. So if you know people, especially if you know people who do what you do and have either the same amount or more experience than you, they can be really wonderful guides in helping you benchmark your value and and then adjust for your specific situation because no two people are the same. I went into becoming an accountant in my 30s. All the, the, the folks that I graduated with, you know, we were all going out into the market offering us the same amount. But I realized that I actually had a decade of life and professional experience before that, that I could leverage, you know, even though it wasn't in accounting, I still had a lot of experience doing a lot of things. So uh, benchmarking is not like a science but it is really helpful to give you some perspective. And totally. And like the thing that comes to mind here is like, it can be really hard to find your exact role. That's that's kind of not, or, or your exact city and role or role that you're going for. The, the point is to start to get a sense of, am I expecting to get paid way less than what other people are getting paid for this? In particular, you want to look for that because that's what you're trying to avoid. If you're used to not getting paid that much, you're trying to reset what you think is, is is right. And kind of similarly, if you sell products or services, you want to go look around at people who are doing similar work to you and see if you're charging a lot less than other people are. And if you are, you want to ask yourself why. You want to have a really specific reason as to why. You know, and if the reason is, oh, I don't think I'm as good, I want to invite you to kind of to examine what's happening in there <laughs> and ask yourself why it's okay for other people to charge more than you for the same thing. And I think back to this idea of like punk and what we were talking about at the beginning of like, you know, I want to charge, you know, my friend who I'm in community with like community wages or community rates or whatever, which is great. And in particular, if you want to be able to spend some of your time doing work with folks in community, that's great. And then it's even more important that you figure out how to charge more to other entities so that you can have enough money to thrive, right? So that you're, you're building a sort of sustainable expectation. I mean, here's like two things that come to mind. One is I recently, well, in the last year, had to really take a hard look at the amount that I was charging for and the way I was working with Ride Free Fearless Money because I noticed that I was charging less than a lot of the people who do similar work than I did. I had to ask myself why. I built a new version of a sliding scale model in parallel with a more market rate model. And so I want to encourage folks to remember, you can always have a couple different services, products, offering. You can have your day job and then like your side sort of like community volunteer work, as long as it all fits together in a way where you actually have enough to get to that like thriving budget. Yes. And now the last thing I want to bring into this exercise, because I really feel like this valuing is like a set of exercises where you're trying to locate yourself and it's not just height and width, it's depth as well. So like, here's another kind of layer to that, which is thinking about opportunity cost. So opportunity cost is like this core economic concept. It's in essence, the cost of the thing that you didn't choose. What it means is if you can put a value on the thing that you're giving up, then that will help you value the thing that you do choose. So if the value of the thing that you're giving up is more than the value of the thing that you're choosing, something is wrong. You're, you're potentially making the wrong choice. Checks. <laughs> 
So how I want to bring this into the conversation is bringing it back to the base fact that you are selling your time. What is the value of you going in to wherever you go and doing something that is not for you, not about you, selling your labor for somebody else, to somebody else, whatever. Or even if it is about you and it is your business and it is your passion project, right? You work for yourself, you lead your own business. You can still apply this valuation because just because you might be enjoying what you do doesn't mean that you shouldn't be paid sustainably for it. And doesn't mean that you couldn't be doing something else. (laughs) Yeah, or somebody else is making all the damn decisions and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it's like I know people who, you know, make a thing and they sell that thing for a living. They also have other stuff they want to do, like play with their kids or read a book or do nothing, sleep more, exercise more. There's a million things that you can do with your time, including absolutely nothing, uh, which was a popular thing I did in my punk years. This, (laughs) and this is important though. I think especially for those of you who like have a couple different jobs or have like day job and side hustle saying, what else could I be doing, including nothing? And how much do I value being able to rest and restore and not extract monetary exchange out of all my time should encourage you to increase the valuation, e.g. in compare in terms of opportunity cost of what it is you might be doing and therefore charging. Thinking about opportunity cost is a really helpful tool in also thinking about how much time you want to work. Because remember that one of the dials that you can push up and down is how many hours a week you want to work. How much time do you actually want to spend working? The default that people think about is setting a valuation based on a 40-hour work week. But again, in doing that budget of what is the amount that I need in a year to thrive, you may or may not decide that what I need to thrive is this amount of money and this amount of time, you know, and so you take the amount of money and you divide it by the amount of time you have available to work. And that's going to tell you how much you are going to look for as like an hourly wage. You know, there's lots of variables that you can input into this and dial them up or down. And one that I would like you to consider is how many hours you work. And if you're getting into a situation where you need to be working more than 40 hours a week to earn the amount of money you need to thrive, then I would say that you are in a position of real disadvantage. And those are red flags where you need to start looking at other things that you can change to move yourself into a labor situation that is healthier. This type of exercise is also something that you can do, you know, at different points in your life. And you're going to have a different analysis um, because your what you need to thrive will be different at different points in life. What you prioritize and want your like opportunity cost assessment is going to be different at different points in life because you might value rest more at one point or you might value professional development and skill building and e.g. working more at another point in life. All of them are fine. (laughs) Um, But I think knowing that this assessment will change over the course of a year or a couple of years can be helpful when you make the assessment knowing that you're not writing it in stone permanently. And I think that is maybe one of the punkest things at all. You don't have to commit (laughs) for the rest of your life to a certain way of being or working. The more I've tried different things in life, the more I like thinking about things as as experiments. How will it work right now if I take this approach? How will that compare to how it used to be? And to Laura's point, like creating and choosing into situations where we don't have enough just keeps us kind of trapped in this, like in all the horrific parts of capitalism. And there's tons of times in life where like you don't have a ton of choice. 
(laughs) and you might find yourself stuck in the horrific parts of capitalism. And that's what marginalization and exploitation is about. So we all want to move ourselves and each other nationally, globally out of that. So don't choose it for yourself on purpose, right? It's okay if you are like, I am going to intentionally choose to make less money and work less because I want more time because I want to make art. A hundred percent. As long as you're picking it on purpose. That's what I want for each of you and for myself. Like, you know, when when I've had times in my life when I was like, no man, it's like make art and tour or nothing. I'd much rather be doing that than making money. That was the right choice for me at the time. Then the transition, you know, when it, when I realized it wasn't the right choice for me is what was hard because I was so used to, you know, not making money. When I made the decision to become an accountant at first, I was like, I'm still going to be making artwork. I'm still going to be doing stuff. And then a couple years in, when I hadn't made anything, I hadn't written anything, I I was talking with my best friend Jordan and I was like, I feel so crappy about myself because I'm not making any art and I'm going to shows for my friends and everyone's making this great stuff. I feel jealous and I feel so sad that I'm not making anything. And Jordan said this amazing thing where he was like, you need a lot of time to make art. You need a lot of time to think and feel and do nothing if you're going to make something. And he's like, you work a lot now. You don't have any space to feel those things. And, you know, you hear stories that like for some people, I'm sure they can, you know, work 60 hours a week and then pump out the next great American novel and like, good for you. But it was a choice that I had to make. And I'm glad that I spent my 20s making art and I would never trade it, even though I know that, you know, like I'm quote unquote starting late to try to save for my retirement, but I still wouldn't trade it because I I love every minute that I that I lived. Look, I I really think the opportunity cost is a really helpful framework in some ways for like narrativizing life choices because I feel similarly like look, I spent a lot of time in my 20s in particular feeling freaked out by not having enough money, but I also spent a lot of time in my 20s living the shit out of my life and making stuff just all the time. You know, I decided I I didn't want to let that like that fear and that stress keep me from the opportunity that I had to use my time. Yeah. On on the one hand, it's like starting late to save for retirement. Sure. I'm working on reframing how I think about money to be like, you can always find more money (laughs) to throw at retirement or to throw at a financial goal. You cannot find more time and you cannot go back in time. You know, I feel sometimes sad for folks who I've like encountered in my journey, you know, into the late labor market. And I'm like, you're like 28. Like, why aren't you just like running wild right now? Like, why are you doing this office with me? Like I'm, I'm in my forties now. I'm like chilling, trying to have some coffee, you know, <laughs> like living, I'm good. Um, up in this comfy office. Why are you in this office? And again, they've assessed what they want to do. So I, you know, again, I don't want to fully judge anyone's choices, but I'm also like it just, you're just pointing at the fact that there is choice. There's choice. Laura and I are like on this podcast being like, you can, you can be a like garbage picking, build your own couching, like underground economy living, goes back to school in your thirties, tattooed wild child and end up with a fully respectable profession. (laughs) Yeah. 
People take me seriously. It's shocking. People with all kinds of fancy titles listen to me because I'm smart. And because you're smart, Laura, it's about like owning your intelligence. And I think as we've talked, Laura, like you and I have a slightly different approach in the sense that I'm on this, like, I've always been thinking about hacking capitalism. And so when I went back in, when I decided to go in, I was just like, well, if I'm going to work, why don't, like, what pays a lot of money? Where can I do something interesting, do some good and get hella paid? But, you know, it's, it's possible. And the last thing that I'm sort of thinking about here is this like, I don't know, I think that like, work is going to continue to look really different over the next bunch of decades. I really appreciate Laura that you just elevated my thinking because you're, you know, with Jordan, hi, um, <laughs> you know, pointing out that a 40 hour work week is a lot. It's funny because it's a 40 hour work week is a lot. Yeah, If you were to look back historically, a hundred years, like our ancestors, they thought that by now we'd be working like 15 hour weeks, 20 hour weeks and robots would be doing the hard stuff. And we have just failed our ancestors so hard on that because we, <laughs> there's just so much we do that we don't have to do but I'm I'm hopeful that like more and more workplaces will take this like four-day work week approach or will take like a job splitting approach and find ways for people to do labor that matters to them to do work that they're good at and they can contribute with and get paid enough to have these thriving lives but also better balance to me the goal the dream is the 25 to 30 hour work week as a New York City resident who has a day job and my own side projects, I'm so far from that. But that is like where I where I seek to go over the next like 10 years of my career. So as you're thinking about your income, your money, the, the negotiating all of this, you want to set yourself up for spaciousness. <laughs> the the dream dream, right, is that like punk life where like I, we have time to like do all the art and the money of the day job. And I just don't want to like, I really don't want to imagine that's impossible. I feel like that's like shitty to be like, oh, well, that's not how things work. Like that's accepting the the horrible poison pill <laughs> of the normies, <laughs> right? As being like, oh, well, it has to be bad. Does it though? Who says? People who I don't want to rep replicate their lives. That's who says that. So I don't want to listen to them. I think that the sequel to like talking about the valuing of your time, and this is a separate episode, is talking about negotiating how to get that. It's one thing to know how to value yourself. It's another thing to achieve that through negotiating that salary or actually getting people to pay you for whatever you do in your business, whether you're making a thing or offering a service to get people to pay you what it is that you believe that you're worth. How do you do that? that, I think that that is a whole other episode that involves figuring out how to negotiate. And to me, preview, a big part of that is imagining what I want is not impossible. I am going to ask for it because I believe that it can be real. You know, you would be shocked at how much people get stuff through just asking for it and then holding to it. But that's another episode. And the I feel like there's one last thing in this episode that we are missing, which is what if you're self-employed? I had a lot of friends who came to me when I first started learning to be an accountant and they would say things like, I'm making this thing and I'm out there and I'm selling it and I'm still poor, I'm still broke. I think I might actually be losing money. Can you help me figure this out? In going through it, I realized that a lot of people, what they're missing when they're trying to figure out what to charge other people for the goods or services that they sell is a misunderstanding of cost accounting. Cost accounting is basically saying how much 
does it cost me to make this thing or provide this service? What does it cost me, the maker, the business person? And then using that as a base to figure out what you're going to charge other people. You need to know what it costs you to run your business and make your product and then build in a layer of profit and set your prices based on that. Well, I want to say it before you're like, oh my God, profit, capitalism. When Laura's saying profit, Laura means the amount of money you're going to pay yourself so you're not volunteering to do this yeah, thing. Yeah, that is your income. <laughs> the profit part is the income. That's your money, yo. I feel like sometimes people are like, I'm going to have a service and I'm going to charge $25 an hour for that service because in their mind, they're thinking, if I had a job and my wage was $25 an hour, I would be happy with that wage. I really want to put it like right in the front is that if you are self-employed and you charge somebody $25 an hour for your labor, you are not actually making $25 an hour because you have costs because you are a business now, you are not just a laborer. And I think that that's super important when you are trying to figure out what to charge other people is that at the base, you need to figure out what it costs you to provide that service or make that good. The difference between what it costs you to make that thing and what you charge other people for that thing, that layer, that is your income. And that amount is where your thriving wage lives. After taxes. Yeah, after taxes. Texas. Do this little exercise. If you're selling a good, you need to ask yourself, how much does it cost me to make that thing? And I see over and over how people determine that calculation is they just figure out what was the cost of the raw materials to make the thing. You know, if they're making pottery or a rug or a, or a thing or whatever it is, they're building furniture, they just calculate the cost of maybe just the direct and indirect materials. They're like, okay, the wood was this and the stain was that and the cost of the whatever they used. But there are two things that people people forget. They forget to factor in the cost of any labor time, like how much time did it take you to make that thing? And the number one thing that people forget, and this is true for a good or a service, like if you're offering a service, people are like, well, it's just my labor time. It's not just your labor time. Everybody has overhead. Everybody, everybody, everybody has mm -hmm. overhead. What is overhead? It is your rent. It is your utilities. It is any licenses that you have to pay for. Like, you know, I'm a CPA. I have to pay a fee for for my license every year and my professional insurance every year. If you use software, so if you're doing graphic design, how much do you pay to use all the software that you use every year? Every single person, whether you're providing a service or a good, you also have purchased some kind of capital assets. You work on a computer, you have tools. Mm -hmm. Those tools cost you things. You invested a big chunk of money in that. That's overhead. You need to think about recuperating your investment. Well, I just want to say, even if you want to give your time for free, you can give your time for free, but still need to charge so that you're not paying to work. Yes. Oh God, please don't pay to work. Please don't pay to work unless what you're doing is saving the world. And even then, you know, like, like literally, you know, it's not sustainable. <laughs> If it's like a one-off save Maybe the world it's like, afternoon. You should try and get paid to save the world. Yeah. I mean, I look, if it's like a one-off afternoon, like if I don't do this thing, the world ends like a movie style. Yes, please save the world. But like <laughs> for the most part, that's not how it works. Um, and also I think that if we decide that like labor that like provides social or environmental good shouldn't be paid, then that's also what that means is that people who don't need money do the good work. And then the rest of us just have to like figure out something else. I don't, I don't think that's, that's fair because everybody ultimately needs money. Whether you get it from a job or some other way. 
with this episode, the key things to think about are stories and experiences that you might have had at one point in life might not apply now to how much money you need or want. And in the future, you might need or want a different amount of money. Reframing like how you think about your labor and how you want to value it in order to advocate for yourself as an employee or as someone who works for yourself, you can do in terms of um, thinking about your your needs budget, your thriving budget, or your opportunity costs. And as always, if you work for yourself, do not forget that it costs you money and taxes so that whatever you're going to end up charging, you should probably be charging more. Boom. See you on the next episode, folks. (laughs) (laughs) This has been another episode of Bottom Lines, Top Dollars, a podcast made by queer punks and anti-capitalist finance professionals who, like you, don't trust money. (laughs) And are therefore obsessed with understanding it. Your hosts are the ladies who crunch. That's me, Laura Boo. And me, Hadassah Damien, from Ride Free Fearless Money. Folks, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review us on whatever podcast app you use. And speaking of money, if you are able, throw us a few bucks at patreon.com slash dollars. Funds from our Patreon will pay for the costs of making and distributing this podcast. And if we grow this project big enough for the cost of getting help to make this. Oh, I love help and I love getting to pay for it. But other free things you can do is support us by following us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Bottom Lines Top Dollars or Ladies Who Crunch. We also have a website where we publish show notes on our blog at ladieswhocrunch.club. Finally, if you have questions to submit for our end of season listener mail episode or feedback for us, or if you just have your own punk money stories to share, you can email us at bottomlines.com topdollars at gmail.com or just find us on one of the social media platforms and message us there. We'd like to thank our listeners and friends who have contributed to the show and especially to our researchers and idea sounding boards, Ariel Federo and Handy Levine. And remember friends, punk's not dead, but capitalism still sucks. And if what you heard in this podcast sounded familiar, you're not alone. Thanks for listening.